The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So offering this morning um, a reflection that uh, is connected to the third foundation, which is where we are in this arc of the talks that we've been, the the topics that we've been exploring in this, in this meeting. And this, uh, the third foundation, I find one way to understand it really is as a kind of um, looking at how we are in relationship to experience. This is very close to my own heart and my own practice through the teachings of Sayadaw Utejaniya, who who does emphasize this, what is the attitude? How are we in relationship to what's happening? And the the third foundation points in particular in the first half of it, and we'll go into this in more detail in the coming weeks, but really wanna keep the reflection brief this morning so that I can hear from you and and see what's going on, you know, what what might be relevant. (laughs) I think this piece will probably be relevant. Um, You know, this piece that I'm going to offer is going to, it will will probably be relevant. Um, In that first section of the third foundation, it points in particular to, well, I'll say something about the structure of the third foundation has two, two parts. The first half is basically pointing to recognizing the presence or absence of states of mind that um, uh, kind of catch us and get us in in trouble. They, they get the mind stuck in loops of reactivity. So the first part of it is noticing the presence or absence of greed, aversion, and delusion, and recognizing whether the mind is... is um, contracted or distracted. So those, that, that flavor of the first part is really noticing what gets in the way of an easeful heart. Noticing when it's there, noticing when it's not there. The second part of it is more noticing qualities of mind that are supportive on the path, in particular areas of noticing how stable and steady the mind is. The presence or absence of those qualities. The piece I want to just reflect on briefly right now is the is the presence of, or absence of greed, aversion, and delusion in relationship to what's happening, and this is both internally and externally. You know, how are we in relationship to uh, what's going on? The the in the guided meditation um, I was pointing to, we were exploring just what's obvious. You know, what is asking to be known? What's coming to us? Maybe it's body sensation, maybe it's sound, maybe it's emotions or thoughts. The piece I didn't bring in in the guided meditation, I felt like there had been enough words, but, but then is, is um, you know, how are you in relationship to that? When you settle back and notice what's obvious, you know, maybe it's the, right now there's some kind of leaf blowing or something going on nearby here, so I can hear that. So that's happening. And how is the mind? You know, is the mind resisting that? Is the mind neutral about it? Does the mind have views and opinions about it? Does the mind like it? I mean, that 
usually with leaf blowers, that's not what happens. Occasionally, I've noticed that the mind can get kind of delighted with the kind of buzzy sound there, but usually it's it's either aversive or neutral for me. Um, so, you know, so what is that? There's There's what's happening and then how we are in relationship to it. And this is a big exploration in terms of what's going on in the world too. You know, what's happening in the world and what's our relationship to it? Usually that relationship has something to do with how we think what's happening in the world affects us. You know, how does it impact my sense of safety? In particular, that seems to be, be a big one. How does it impact my sense of safety? How does it impact how I move through the world? And then we often end up, you know, the, the relationship that we have to what's happening in the world is often not simply, I mean, it, it, like the, the, uh, the leaf blower, you know, that, that's something happening in the world. We can take it to just that right now. The leaf blower's happening in the world. And, you know, I've seen over years of meditation practice that the leaf blower itself does not make me averse. It gets filtered through something else that's happening inside. Some idea, some kind of sense of who I am or what's right and what's wrong. I can't tell you the number of times I've had the idea while, uh, especially at retreat centers, you know, at retreat centers when we're having, um, you know, the morning instruction period and and, you know, the, the, the retreat center decides to do lawn mowing right outside the meditation hall, right when we're doing instructions. It's like, don't they know? <laughs> you know, yes, they should know. <laughs> What's going on? You know, so, so, you know, so how many, there's been so many times I've had that kind of a thought, you know, don't they know that we're doing this thing here and that this is more important or whatever, you know, it's like, well, the people who are taking care of the grounds, they have their own schedule and they are taking care of us. And there have been plenty of times, too, when I've seen that, that lawn mowing happening during that time. And it's like, you know, just seeing how the mind is like the waves of the, the further and closer and kind of the buzzy feeling that comes in the body as it hears the sound. And, and there's kind of a delight of that. So it's not the lawnmower, it's not the leaf blower. It gets filtered through something else that's happening internally. And so it's really worthwhile to, first of all, notice what the reaction is, you know, what the response is. Is there greed? Is there aversion? Is there delusion? And the, the third foundation points too, uh, to, uh, is that not there? You know, is greed, aversion, delusion not there? Noticing the presence or the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so in the, in the um, you know, the, the leaf blower thing or the, the lawnmower thing, recognizing certain days, you know, how it's different. Oh, the aversion isn't arising today. Non-aversion is not, aversion is not happening. That is a very important understanding because then we do begin to realize that the, uh, how the mind relates to the experience is not inherent in what's happening out in the world, that it is related to what's going on, other conditions in the mind and in the body. And I've seen it for myself, you know, some of the, the conditions can be 
uh, kind of simple or physical. Well, have I gotten enough sleep? Am I hungry? You know, things like that. But also, you know, have I had a conversation with somebody that was disturbing? Um, you know, that kind of thing can also affect me. The other thing that's really um, powerful is noticing, and this is in the realm of delusion. Um, so this is, you know, you, you will talk more in the coming weeks around differences, you know, what, what how to notice greed, aversion, and delusion. But, um, you know, greed is, is kind of that pull towards something, wanting to have it, aversion, pushing it away, you know, the, the um, flavors of fear or anxiety or irritation or uh, anger you know, all those different flavors, there's basically a, f a feeling of separation. So the, the, the simplicity of the third foundation is that you don't have to like know particularly which emotion it is, but it's more like, is it an emotion or is it a sense of wanting to be with that thing, kind of stick to it, or wanting to not be with that thing, you know, separate. So is it a, a, is it a you know, a sticking or a separating kind of quality? Um, you don't have to particularly know, well, is this irritation or, or, uh, or a low-grade anger? You know, you, you don't have to, like, do that. It's just like, oh, I don't know. It's like the separation quality. But then another important one around delusion is, like, is what is there some idea or view or belief that is taken to be truth? like that idea that I, I mentioned, you know, it's like, you know, they should not be using the lawnmower during a meditation period. This is, after all, a meditation center, you know, and they know the schedule, you know, so that, that, that's a view. That's an idea. It's a, it's, it's, it's a held belief. And, uh, you know, those kinds of beliefs are a primary reason why the mind would then leap to either greed or aversion. So that, that view, I mean, the view of, you know, th this is not what should happen at a meditation hall. That sounds like, you know, a kind of a neutral or, you know, not particularly aversive. It's just the truth. It's just a fact. That's at least that's the way the mind interprets it, right? In that moment, it interprets it as that. Well, that's just what should happen. And then out of that grows the, you know, the aversive relationship when something disturbs the quiet of the meditation hall. So the the that's a, the, the the view or the belief itself is not necessarily delusion but not seeing that it is a view that's held and taken to be a true thing, you know, that, that we think that this is right, as opposed to this is maybe um, kind of what I think an ideal meditation center should be like, and huh, it's not happening. You know, that, that's, not, that's not what's going on. So the, 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 the delusion comes in when we don't see a view as a view, and we take it to be truth. And so the, the view itself is, is um, you know, in the Buddha's teaching, he talked about views a lot and he, he, he offered right view. He offered a view that is useful towards freeing the mind. And so to me, that brings in perhaps a way to explore views is not as, do I have to decide if my view is right or somebody else's view is right? But 
you know, these views are, um, uh, are useful or not, you know, depending on what the situation is, to further something. And, um, you know, so the view of the right view that the Buddha points about, the, talks about the, the view of you know, the classic definition of right view is understanding that this, the suffering that is possible to be free of is a suffering that's created through this relationship, a kind of a craving for something to be there or not be there. The first noble truth, there is suffering. The second noble truth, that suffering is created through craving and that it is possible to be free of that craving. He expresses that as a view, not as, they're called the noble truths, but um, um, you know, he, he, he points to them not as something true to be believed and decided is it valid or not, but something as useful to engage with in our lives and see what the results of engaging through that view are. And so to not, he even says in, in several places, clinging to the view, clinging to right view is not helpful. So, um, so I think that's the important piece around I mean, delusion can also be kind of a disconnection. I talked earlier before the, the, the meditation, um, you know, about uh, in my experience in the retreat, seeing how the mind was so balanced and quiet during that time where I wasn't paying attention to the world. You know, it's like, that's the equanimity of unknowing. You know, that's, that's I wouldn't say, I knew that that was true. You know, I knew that that I didn't know what was going on, and that that was a condition for the ease of mind. Um, and yet sometimes we can not know that we don't know something. And that's a form of delusion too, you know, so that the, the unawareness, and then like the sense of it's not important that I don't know that, or just the kind of like, just so the, the disconnection from experience. Now it's not, it doesn't mean that we have to um, like know everything that's happening in the world. But I think what, what, what the, um, this may point to is uh, that we need to know that we don't know everything and hold that pretty much anything could be happening. And that, you know, our current state may be based on uh, you know, not knowing or, or unawareness of, and that, it, it, you know, as soon as awareness, as soon as the awareness of something shifts or we become aware of something, how quickly, and this, this I saw as I, be, I began to take in the information after the retreat, you know, how quickly the mind picks things up and, and responds to them. Um, so, um, you know, to, to just, kind of have a curiosity for ourselves about how we are in relationship to what's happening. And when, the, I'd say very often the relationship of greed and aversion is coming not directly from the experience, but filtered through some view that we are taking that we're not so aware of or we may be aware of it, and, and I certainly have seen that, that even when I'm aware of my views, aware that I'm holding to a view, you know, that, that that 
doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not going to be averse or holding on to something. But at least there is the awareness of this aversion, this greed is based in holding to a view. There, that, can be, that can be understood. And I think this is an important part for our uh, navigating the world right now to be curious about our, um, our relationships. Because when we are relating, when we are reacting out of greed, aversion, or holding to our views and not um, understanding or recognizing that, it, that, that what we're, kind of the perspective we're coming from is a perspective. This, um, this creates that kind of reactivity that arises from those mind states, creates kind of a tension in the world and, and contributes to suffering in the world not just internally, but externally. You know, when we are frustrated or angry, if we speak out of frustration or anger, that has an effect, that has a ripple effect. And so becoming aware of, of how we are, and even, even if we can't say, oh, I'm frustrated, okay, well, let me let that go. Maybe we can't let the frustration go, but at least we can know, well, there's frustration here. Can I, can I be careful when I speak? Can I um, uh, take that frustration into account and not necessarily let it just like beeline out of my mouth without some sense of recognizing how that might affect the other person, you know, how that might contribute to, you know, reactivity on the other side. I think we've all seen or known that kind of experience of somebody comes to us with a kind of a, a hard energy a reactive energy, whew, it kind of, in a mirror effect, it creates it in us. And so if we want to have dialogue with each other, you know, that kind of coming from that hard energy is not a place to begin a dialogue. And so I think we can um, take uh, some interest in our, you know, where we are and, and explore possibly uh, Allowing that awareness to support us to um, perhaps have dialogue as opposed to, I need to convince you of my view or, <laughs> or uh, just, you know, trying, you know, telling somebody they're wrong or, or I'm right, you know. So I think those are some key words, actually, in terms of the views, you know, right, wrong, good, bad. You know, the, those kinds of you should, shouldn't, you know, if those kinds of words are coming in your mind around what's happening in your experience or in the world, um, those are, are kind of clues to that there's a view and um, uh, to, to kind of take care, especially if there's a kind of a charge, an emotional charge around it. Now, what I'm pointing to here, this kind of you know, the, the charge around um, what's going on in the world. When we come to a place where there is some balance, you know, when there's, there is a place of, okay, I can be, you know, at ease with this. Um, I can not have that reactivity coming up. What may be surprising is that that's not a mind state necessarily. I mean, it might be, it could be that, 
that that would create a sense of, okay, I don't need to say anything or I don't need to do anything. But it also can, can create the sense of, of being able to speak not from anger or frustration or wanting desire, but more from a place of compassion and wisdom and generosity and care and love. Because those qualities also do motivate us to act and speak. So I think, you know, when we're caught in those flavors of greed, aversion, and caught in our views, the, the delusion side, um, those states of mind kind of make us believe that they're the only motivators for action in the world. And that if I'm not, you know, kind of got that energy or that charge of whatever, of wanting or aversion, then why would I do anything? And, and those, those mindsets will tell you that. You need me in order to act. And yet, you know, as they diminish, as they quiet down, there is room for the, um, the kind of, even an urgency of action from compassion. So it's not, you know, just kind of like, oh yeah. You know, that equanimity is not an equanimity of passivity. It can be an equanimity with an urgency. So those are kind of my reflections this morning. And I'm really curious as to what's, uh, you know, what's going on. And there can be, we could have a, a conversation about what I've reflected on or anything that seems relevant there or... Um, Anything else? Um, yeah, Twee. So I, I think I heard you say that the Buddha said that we should not cling to right view. So, but you always said that right view is very useful, you know, in, um, in meditation and, and, you know, in, in the, in the practice, so when so I should I should not cling to the right the view that is a is there's only a process there's nobody there doing anything. What I would say is, um, you will cling to that view, and you need to know you're clinging to it, <laughs> <laughs> and you need to understand suffering of clinging to it. Really. So, what, and I will say, I mean, it's like, so I love the analogy, the simile of the raft around this. It's, it's so helpful because it really demonstrates, I think, exactly what the Buddha is pointing to. And, and this is a, one of the key teachings, actually, around the not clinging to the Dharma. You know, this is where it's very explicit, is in, and he uses the simile of the raft. You know, he says, you know, if you're on this shore and there's danger on this shore, you know, and, and there's a crossing of a, a river, a flood, you've got this flood between you and safety, you know, you can build a raft, you know, build a raft out of what's around you. 
you know, and, and to me, I love that image, you know, the building of a raft, you know, it's not like you're getting out the saw and the, you know, the, the high quality wood to, Ajahn Sumedho points to this in his analogy of this, it's not like you're building this, you know, amazing yacht to cross the flood. You're building a raft and you're gathering what's around you, you know, the sticks and the twine, maybe, you know, um, uh, you know, vines in the forest or, you know, whatever you, you can find. And I love that analogy because to me, that's present moment experience is what we build our raft out of. Just what's here. And then the raft itself, the building of the raft is using the eightfold path, the Buddha says. It's using right view. It's using the eightfold path so that the, the raft itself is the eightfold path in the analogy. He, he points to that. So, so we, we take what's around us, our experience, and use the lens of the Eightfold Path to get curious about what's happening in our experience. Now, the, the, the crossing the flood analogy itself, you know, I, I've um, explored this in my own thinking, and, and I think the analogies of the Buddha are so profound. You know, it's like we can take that little, that image and I, I just like put myself in that image and it's like, okay, I'm crossing a flood on a raft. I have to hold on to the raft. You know, I can't let go of the raft when I'm in the middle of the flood. The, the Buddha equates the flood with greed, aversion, and delusion. And so while we're crossing that flood on this raft, which is put together out of sticks and twine and, you know, it's kind of, got gaps in it, you know, imagine yourself on that raft. You're going to be getting wet. You know, it's, you're not going to stay dry as you're crossing that flood. So there will be greed, aversion, and delusion washing over you. But you do have this raft that you can um, use. You're using the raft while you're crossing it. And you have to hold on to it. That's another piece of the image. You know, especially if the current gets strong, you better hold on to that raft. So there are times when, and I've seen this in my own practice, like, yeah, I'm holding on to this. I feel that I'm clinging to this. Yes, there's tightness and tension and suffering with that, but the suffering that would be happening if I fell into the river would be way worse. You know, there is the ache of the arms that, you know, holding on to that raft to stay afloat. But if I let go of the raft, boy, it's going to be a big problem. You know, I'm just going to get swept down the, down the river. So we do have to hold on to the raft. I think during our practice, we have to hold on to those views sometimes. And I've definitely seen that. You know, it's like when I'm in the throes of an aversion attack, holding on to the Dharma, you know, knowing, bringing my mind back. Yes, be aware of this. Notice the suffering of this. You know, there can be some tension to bringing the mind back there, but it's way less damaging in a way than just like saying, oh, I can't, I can't do that. I'm just going to give in to the greed, aversion, and delusion. You know, give in to that and then just swept away by that. And then hours later emerge and then there's a lot of suffering to work with. So I feel like the, you know, the not clinging to the Dharma for me is kind of a staged thing. 
And the image that the Buddha offers of the raft points to that because he says, you know, making effort with your hands and your feet, you cross the flood on the raft. And he says, and when you get to the far shore, he says, you might think getting to the far shore, wow, this raft has been so great to me. It's been really helpful. So let me carry it with me around as I walk around. Let me carry it with me on my head. And he asked his, his followers, is that useful? And they said, no, of course not. He says, just the same, it's not useful to cling to the Dharma. And yet there is a form of holding, or we could say making use of, knowing that we're making use of these teachings. But then to kind of cling to them, um, and, and I think the, the clinging to them may manifest as um, arrogance, perhaps. Yes. I know what's right. You know, you don't know what's right. Um, or this is the only way, you know, this, you know, if you don't do the way I did it, if you don't cross the flood the way I cross the flood, then you're not doing it right. You know, this raft has to be built just this way. There's no other way to build a raft. You know, that kind of thing is clinging to the Dharma. So we do have, we do have to um, use, you know, it, 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 the, the, the tools of the Dharma are, are, oh my gosh, I feel like they've saved my life. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, but and, and another piece I'd say too, in my own exploration of this whole process is that you know, so the suffering of holding on to the Dharma, like I gave in that analogy of the raft, you're holding on to the raft, you know, the, the, the clinging, the tension of the muscles there, you know, if, if we're using the analogy, the muscles, the tension of holding on to the raft and, and trying to kick with your feet, all of that's going to be tiring and it's going to be exhausting. And there's going to be pain associated with that. So some, so, some sort of suffering in some way. Um, but again, much less suffering than if you just get swept down the river <laughs> and drown. Um, while you're crossing the flood, understanding that holding on is keeping you afloat. You may not be so um, focused on the suffering of the body pains that are happening as you're holding onto the raft. Maybe not, you know, you're probably more focused on the flat. Maybe there's could be more of a focus on the fact that I'm breathing, I'm alive, I'm, I'm still, you know, making my way across the flood. And so likewise, in my own practice, there definitely um, have been times where I've known I was clinging to something wholesome. You know, so investigation for me, the, the mind that kind of is curious about and looks at experience and understands things that are going on, that, that part of my mind, um, I, I definitely had, you know, there, there was clinging to that. There was a sense of, I'm, I do this, I, I'm good at this, um, you know, this is, and the, and the kind of the delight of seeing something um, and then kind of taking ownership of that, I could see that there was clinging, especially when there's, you know, in the midst of, in the midst of um, 
like investigating an av aversion attack. You know, uh, the, the mind in that, caught in that state of aversion, the mind that could be curious about it. You know, it's like, wow, you know, that, that, that mind that can be curious about it really helps not to be so caught in the, in the aversion. And then the mind gets attached to the, the curiosity because it made me feel better. And, uh, and so, you know, but, but, but while in the midst of the aversion attack, noticing or saying, wow, I'm attached to that curiosity. I shouldn't be curious about this. That's not helpful. And so, um, you know, the, the kind of, the kind of, um, it feels to me like a staged letting go or something. So when there is, a, um, you know, when the mind is really in a reactive place, holding on to that raft, clinging in a way, we might be clinging to the Dharma, we might be clinging to the tools that we're using, you know, the, the, the interest, the curiosity or meta practice or concentration practice or, in, uh, you know, just, just, being with experience, we might be clinging to that. But that can be helping us to let go of something that's more dangerous in a way. At some point in your practice, and it was you know, a number of years into my practice, I knew, and in some ways it was kind of an intellectual knowing that I had been clinging to that investigation, that curiosity. At a certain point in my practice, that became the primary suffering of the practice much of the big forms of greed, aversion, and delusion had fallen away. I was no longer, you know, struggling at that level. It's more like I was on a very smooth part of the river, you know? It's like, think, you know, could float, just a small kick and I could float for a little while or something like that, you know? So it's, it's not like I'm really having to hold more tightly. It's much, much more smooth. At that point, the suffering of clinging to that curiosity and that investigation became so obvious. That's really when we need to do that work of, of letting it go or, or at least exploring the real suffering of holding on to it. So when the, the suffering of holding on to the wholesome states is more obvious than the suffering of you know, the, the reactivity, that's when we, we really need to look at how we are clinging to the Dharma. So if we're always curious about where the suffering is, this practice, Gil sometimes uses the phrase, the practice is self-correcting. So if we're, if we're always curious about, you know, what, you know, so we're practicing, you know, we're doing what we've been doing for myself. I was, I was, you know, investigating experience the way I'd been investigating, you know, that kind of diving in and looking for what's here. It's like that activity of mind was so much more kind of agitated than what was going on. You know, the kind of calm spaces of being at ease. It's like that was so much more agitating. It's like this is not the tool for this time. And yet the mind was, was kind of hooked to it. So it had to, it had to learn how to unhook from that through being with the suffering of it. And some of the suffering was, you know, related to some idea that I thought I knew how to practice. 
you know, the identification, the, the me being in charge of, you know, that was, that was the big hook, I think, with investigation, because it felt like I could do it. it. felt like I could be in charge of the practice. And at a certain point, it's like, yeah, you don't get to be in charge of the practice. And there was a lot of suffering to the identification of letting us like, no, I, I need to be in control of this. So, so, and that'll happen differently for each person, you know, depending on where the clinging is, you know, what the, what the, the clinging is. So, so I, I mean, you will cling to the practice. You don't have to, you know, noticing that if there, so if there is suffering around it that is obvious and more obvious than the suffering of what the, the clinging to the Dharma is allowing you to work with, then you know, that's, that's the place to, to look at. We orient to where the suffering is and where the freedom is. And you know, the great thing is if we are interested in that, we will begin to see that we have been clinging to the Dharma and that that does create suffering and that that's the place now to uh, kind of, you know, it, it, it was, it's interesting, you know, for me, it's like, well, how do I investigate when investigation is the thing I'm clinging to? And so that was, that was, that was a, a thing my mind had to learn without me being in charge of it. I hope that that speaks to. Yeah, it does. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a couple. Can I jump in? Yeah, sure. Or did people have their hands raised? No, okay. go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Uh, I think this is somewhat related um, to sort of kind of around where there's some confusion in my life just about, you know, kind of bigger picture decisions and life trajectory. And, and there's, it's been kind of for a year or so, this sort of general, just a lot of contemplation and, and some learning just around, you know, the different options and just learning about myself. And, uh, and there's, there's not clarity and, uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, so I've just been kind of, you know, and I've had conversations with wise people, you know, I think mostly I'm sort of, you know, exploring that space of not knowing and, and um, learning from that. And then, uh, and so, but I think part of it, maybe what you're speaking of, like the attachment to like a good enough life situation where things are like, and, and, uh, just that kind of willingness, like when I don't know, instead of just doing what I'm, what I've been doing, to not know and just try something new, and and so that fear around just that trying something new potentially. Um, so yeah, just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I think you know the first thing that occurred to me to say is, is like you know sometimes in these life decision piece things um and i don't know if this is up for you or not but 
I know for myself, when I had these kind of things, you know, I kind of could see, well, either, either direction. It's not like it's not about wholesome or unwholesome here necessarily. Um, but, you know, it, it, so, so I, thought, I thought there was supposed to be some right answer. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're, they're not necessarily a right answer. And so I think that's sometimes the place where our mind kind of goes back and forth is what's the right thing. And that yeah. right, that, that right there is a view. There is a right answer, you know, that's a view. And so, you know, the not knowing piece can, can kind of take us to, well, actually, you know, maybe it doesn't matter which one I choose. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then to look at, like you say, to look at like what might be getting in the way of choosing one or the other. And is that wholesome, you know, the fear or, or anxiety right. or something, you know, so, um, or what draws me to one or the other? And is it, does, is it, um, is it something that feels an expansion of the heart or a contraction of the heart? You know, that, that simple mm-hmm. check-in can be really useful because uh, sometimes when we're, you know, so like moving in a direct or saying, oh, maybe not that one, you know, it might be, oh, a contraction of the heart. Or it could be, you know, that there's more of an expansion of the heart as the as as the heart is moving in in another direction, and so that so that that feeling of does the heart feel like more constricted or open? And I think that's a that's actually the feeling of the heart we can take as mm-hmm. you know that you know is it the, the constriction is more of the aversion side? I think mm-hmm. the opening the the expansiveness I think is more the. Uh, the the place of wholesomeness um mm. you know a kind of a leaning to or a grabbing out at that might be the greed side or that the feeling of wanting to leap over the whole process of transition and just get there that's you know might be the greed side and so so just to explore and then um i found it useful in those times um to take some time um you know i've, I've proposed this or suggested this to a number of people um you know, that when there is different options, it can be useful to take some time in a meditative form and just like bring into the mind one option and see how does the heart respond. You know, so it's using thought. It's, I call this a reflection practice because you're consciously using thought, but then touching in. How does it feel? How does it land? In particular, in that area of constriction or expansion. Um, and so to kind of look at what's the relationship to the, to the kind of the scenario or the, or the option, let yourself take time to sit with one option or another, and maybe, you know, one option for several days and then the other option for a few days and just see what's the quality in the heart. And, and what do you learn about yourself? You know, it might not create that, you know, the answer, but you'll get some different kind of information. Um, to approach yeah. it from a meditative perspective that way. Thank you. That's helpful. And it's time to stop. So it's delightful to see you all again. <laughs>